This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, Literary Treks 220, in which we're going to be talking about the William Shatner novel Captain's Blood. But it's not just me talking about this novel by myself, because that would be really boring. So joining me, as he does always, is the wonderful partner in crime, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you today? I'm doing well. I kind of like the idea of maybe you just talking about the book. I want to see how that would go. It would almost be like your YouTube videos. It's just you doing the talking. So why don't you review Captain's Blood and I'll just sit here and laugh. <laughs> I'll be um, your laugh track. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to veto that. I really like the discussion aspect a bit too much. So it would be just me doing me and then another voice. And it would just get really weird and I'd get confused and wouldn't remember who I was supposed to be at that That's moment. True. So. Uh, yeah, no, let's, let's Good. just, I was hoping that. you'd say that <laughs> I was, because I was really sitting here afraid you would say, yeah, I, I'd prefer just to talk about it by myself and you can just listen. <laughs> I'd be like, Dan, <laughs> you don't like me. <laughs> yeah, maybe actually it's a good idea. You shouldn't give me an opening like that. You never know. You never know what I'll say. I'm testing you. But no, no, it wouldn't be literary treks without the two of us talking together about something. And not just Captain's Blood, we've got a couple news items. Of course, the newest Star Trek novel release, and this is something that we should focus on because there are precious few of them this year. The newest Star Trek Discovery novel, Drastic Measures, has just been released at the time of this recording. It'll have been out for a little while once this show is released to the public. But if you haven't picked up your copy, you should make sure to grab it because we will, of course, be discussing the book on an upcoming episode. It was released on February 5th, the book was, and Dayton Ward, the author, will, as usual, be joining us to talk about it in episode 222 of Literary Treks. So you'll want to keep an ear out for that and make sure to pick up this book because by all accounts, I haven't read it yet myself, but... By all accounts from people whose opinions I trust, it's pretty good. I think uh, Dayton would say it's a good book because... Yeah, I, I think I, so too, yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, because he wrote it. Um, 
No, I haven't started <laughs> reading it yet. I do have it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting into it because, as you mentioned, of course, of as of this recording or as this show is released, Discovery had has ended its first season. So we don't have any new Star Trek Discovery until the second season comes out, which apparently is sometime in 2019. So we have a year, maybe more, I don't know, about a year until we get new episodes. So now that we're done season one, it's great to go into an original story through a novel. And then we've got another one after this coming in sometime. I can't remember when, but somewhere later in 2018. Well, and especially with that jaw-dropping cliffhanger and or everything being wrapped up in a nice little bow that happened at the end of Discovery. Remember, Bruce? I remember that too, Dan. <laughs> I am, of course, kidding. Uh, as of the recording of this, we're still a few days away from the season finale of Discovery. So, uh, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, I guess you guys probably all know, but right now we don't. So Yes, but as you're wow. listening to this, oh, man. we do know even though we don't know <laughs> that's true <laughs> oh my you know well what, what else i know, know bruce i know i know that we have a new comic to talk about this week as yes, well yes we do and it's a new visions comic yeah so those of you you know we've talked about every issue of the of this series as it's come out new visions is the series by john byrne that is designed to look like a photo novel he's taken uh, still shots of the crew and the ship from various episodes of Star Trek and put them together almost as a new episode and sometimes creating his own new backgrounds for and new aliens uh, to populate the story. So this uh, this issue is issue number 20. So we've had 20 issues of this series and this one is called Isolation. So Bruce... Initially, what were your thoughts going into this one? My thoughts were, I hope I like this. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't really have any thoughts about it going into it, just wondering you know, if it was going to be any good or not. Because I typically don't read the teasers from the previous issue because mm -hmm. I don't really want to know. I don't want to be spoiled. But in the cover of this, we do see uh, Kirk on the bridge with Spock and McCoy and... Kirk's like, don't you see her? It's Edith Keeler. And Spock's like, but Edith Keeler is dead. And that's all I knew about the this uh, issue. What about you? Yeah, I actually did glance at the teaser the la in the last issue, so I knew that was coming. But interestingly enough, that situation on the bridge with Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Edith Keeler, that never actually happens in the oh. comic. Edith Keeler does show up, but Kirk sees her as kind of an illusion that only he himself sees while he's separated from everyone else. So the other characters aren't there. So it was a little odd, but I guess kind of in the tradition of we like we recently talked about yes. the gold key comics, right? And they always have that splash page at the front that. that has some crazy situation. And it may or may not bear some semblance to something that actually happens yes, in the story. Yes, I, I was just thinking that exact same thing. I was going to bring that up. And, and also mention, you know, you know, never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> or even a few pages in, <laughs> <That> apparently. <too. laughs> 
but yeah, so this is a really interesting story. We get this, uh, basically something happens there. The systems on the enterprise are kind of going a little weird and all of a sudden each of the characters finds themselves completely alone on the enterprise. And this is kind of illustrated in a really cool image, which is, you know, kind of the second, uh, second page of the story and it shows the same scene on the bridge repeated a bunch of times and each character is just in isolation by themselves with no one else in the panel which is really neat so simultaneously they're all experiencing this empty bridge and basically can't see the people around them or are maybe transported somewhere else or something we don't really know at this point. I liked it because, as you mentioned on this page, we're seeing several panels of the bridge. And Kirk's in the top panel by himself, then Spock's in the bottom panel, and McCoy and so on and so forth. But it's the same shot, wide shot, of the bridge. And it's repeated throughout the page. And I like just seeing the bridge in a wide shot that's empty. I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, usually there's people everywhere and something's going on. But just to just look at the empty bridge in this wide shot, it's just something I, I enjoy seeing. So I'm kind of glad they disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. It's uh, visually a really cool thing. I don't know. It just there's something about it that I feel like would be difficult to get across on a television screen exactly what's happening because you'd have camera movement and camera changes and stuff. It'd be hard to communicate the idea that every single one of them is alone on the bridge without doing this really wide shot, which you never really saw on the original series with a couple of exceptions. And and that's part of the reason why I like this. Just seeing that shot like that. And notice, I just noticed uh, that there's a red alert going on, but they didn't sound red alert. Oh, continuity error. (laughs) Well, basically, we come to understand that there's some sort of being behind this, and he's kind of performing experiments, but it takes a little while for us to get there. Each of the characters... Actually, this was another thing I really liked about this comic. Each of the characters responds to this situation in a very unique way. Uh, Kirk tries to get off the bridge, tries to hail his crew, tries to get, you know, work the turbo lift. And this part's really cool because we get to see some areas, you know, the guts of the ship that we don't normally see. John Byrne's kind of done a neat neat, uh, job of putting together this kind of hidden behind the walls of the bridge stuff. And Spock, of course, is very logical about it, starts, you know, doing all these steps to establish exactly what's going on and, you know, kind of ends up doing the same thing, crawls into the guts of the ship and gets to a different deck. And basically all of the characters are responding to this in their own way. And little different things happen to each one of them. I like how you said that we see different areas of the ship we haven't seen before, because again, like seeing the bridge this is another one of the things that I loved about this comic is it felt like a tour of the Enterprise. Each character is going mm-hmm. to different areas of the ship, some familiar, some not so familiar. But as I'm going through each of the pages, I was really enjoying the fact of, ooh, we're going here and we're going there and we're seeing this and we're seeing that. And and there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. So you're seeing a lot of you know full pictures 
of these different locales on the Enterprise. And I really enjoyed that. I just, I think visually, this is the most I've enjoyed a New Visions comic. Yeah, I think so too. And for me, it was, you know, the other comics kind of got across what they were trying to show despite the limitations of this. But I think this is the first one that for me really uses this format really well and really explores it, like we said, with the bridge shots earlier. But then, you know, little things like, you know, I didn't know that if you popped the dedication plaque of the Enterprise off the wall, there's a little manual opener for the turbo lift doors there but scotty obviously knows that and that's how he's gonna get into the turbo lift those you know really cool little things like that were just really neat that john burns able to explore this space that we've seen hundreds of times well 79 times but then hundreds of more times when we've rewatched them and is is able to do new and interesting things. With I even it. like Scotty in the engine room and he's climbing up a ladder to get into his office. And then we're seeing, you know, a shot of him in his office through the window, you know, being, you know, higher up over the engineering room, just different angles and different things that we haven't seen in the original series. Uh, and just like you said, behind mm-hmm. the plaque of the operating, the turbo lift. And uh, I feel like there was something else I saw in there too. That was different. But um, I can't recall what it is at this moment. But well, also, well, I, I know what it was when Spock crawls up into I don't even know what it is, but it's a it, oh, it's the main library computer. And oh yeah, just, yeah, the computer yeah, the core, computer basically. core, and it's just like just tons of these recording. I don't even know how to describe it, but like shelves, I guess of all these different recordings and such. And it's very colorful. It keeps in the same color scheme as the enterprise with uh, red and green lights and yellow of the ladder. And so, I mean, it's just really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting bits for sure. And I, I think it's kind of hard to tell, but I think Kirk kicks the panel beside the turbo lift and it opens a door into a different, like there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that, um, because of also a little bit of the limitations of, of the format here, it's a little hard to figure out exactly what's going on in some of these, but I really appreciate the effort and I think it looks really cool. Yeah. When Scotty got on the turbo lift, I was a little unsure at first, really what happened to him. Like, <laughs> you know, he just all of a sudden was on there and then he <laughs> seemed like he was tumbling out or something, but I guess it was the gravity. Yeah. I, I, either the gravity or the turbo lift dropped really fast or, or something like that. It's kind of hard to tell exactly yeah, what happened. It probably but. dropped real fast. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, and then also seeing Rand was interesting because mm-hmm. she's in a blue uniform and her hair is a different style. And it just shows the progression of time in the five-year mission and that she's doing a different job. She's got a slightly different look as if, you know, time has moved on from what we saw in the first season. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Spock runs into Rand and doesn't believe that she's real. And Kirk runs into, as we were teased at the beginning of the story, Edith Keeler, who is trying to convince Kirk that, you know, she's asking him, where are we? What is this place? What's going on? Why are you dressed like Dr. McCoy? And he says, what are you talking about? So when Dr. McCoy first came to the mission, he wore a uniform like that. It was a different color though. And 
So whoever's behind this has very intimate knowledge or is able to read the thoughts of the crew members and pull very specific things from their minds because this is a really elaborate deception that's being perpetrated here. And we do learn, of course, it is a deception. It turns out, and I thought this was really interesting and it took a little bit for me to kind of wrap my head around exactly what happened here, but it turns out they're all exactly where they were on the bridge. And this is all happening in each of their yes. minds, which was a neat concept. Yeah. So very Star Trekky because I, I feel like that's, that's something familiar. <laughs> yeah. They're all just frozen on the bridge. And of course, if anybody's going to figure this out, it's Spock <laughs> and then he's unfrozen and then he's able to, kind of help the others. I'm trying not to spoil it too much, but you know, of course, you know, mm -hmm. Spock helps things to get to where they need to be. But then we see other things where when the crew is isolated, then they start running into each other. Like Chekhov runs into Uhura in her, uh, in her cabin. Um, mm -hmm. But then that turns out to not be the real Uhura. And the real Uhura is being shown right. what's happening with Chekhov and the fake Uhura. Like there's, there's some really interesting bits and you know, this guy that's behind it all, I guess he's experimenting and doing all these weird behavioral experiments on the enterprise crew. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, inter it's well, different. And this <laughs> fake Uhura starts hitting on Chekhov and she's like, it reminds me of Star Trek Five with Scotty too, by the way. But she's like, there are so many more mm -hmm. interesting things we could be doing. And Chekhov says, Nayota, Lieutenant, this is not the time. And I'm thinking, it's not the time, Chekhov? Like, what, you think there's a better time for this? Should the answer be like, no, we should be doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily Chekhov does kind of say yeah. that next because... Like we mentioned, Uhura is watching this and she she's not worried, right? She says, Chekhov will figure it out. He's a smart guy. He I don't think that anything, you know, improprietous is going to happen here. And I don't think that's a real word. But, you know, basically Chekhov does say, no, this is wrong. You can't be Uhura. This is this is not how you yeah. act. So, yeah. yeah. And, and now that we're picking on Chekhov, well, we're not really picking on, but I'm going to pick on Chekhov. <laughs> we have talked about in these New Vision comics, the way Chekhov's dialogue is written. It's a little heavy on the dis and that and all this. There was one uh, <laughs> panel later on in the story where it was so overdone. I just, I, I, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I'm, I'm looking for it right now. Okay, here he, he says, uh, <laughs> confirming dot... Captain, we are half a light year from Beta Reticuli, which is where we were when the equipment started acting up. There are so many v v v v v Oh, man. You know, honestly, less is more. You know, with, with something like this, with a, with a spe speech affectation you know just maybe look at a sentence like that and then take out every other <laughs> instance of you know just less is more like we don't need it to be yeah that's too much 
I remember that line too, actually. And, and that's, yeah, it's really But it's good. sure fun to read out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So basically, of course, they're all in their own minds and they're getting experimented on. And, you know, we won't reveal exactly how this all wraps up. I think this is definitely, if you haven't read the New Visions comics before, you should pick this one up. This one's a really good example I think maybe the design of the alien is a little weird and out there, but at the same time, you know, that's kind of one of its saving graces too. I think the fact that you can have something that's a little bit outside of the humanoid norm, if you're doing something that's not beholden to what happened on the television show. Yeah. Why not take that opportunity? I can't place what the alien reminds me of, but I keep thinking Dr. Seuss character. But I don't hmm. think that's really what that could be. It's just, there's something about the alien where I'm like, oh yeah, that reminds me of, and I can't place it. But yeah, to me, it's kind of very Doctor Seussy. I don't <laughs> Doctor Seussy. Mm-hmm. Have you <laughs> ever called anything <laughs> Doctor Seussy before? No. <laughs> In the Seussian style. <laughs> What's interesting about the design of the alien, though, I should say, is as soon as I saw him. I heard his voice, which is interesting. Like he all of a sudden had this very distinctive kind of soft spoken gentlemanly voice with just a little bit of a, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, it's just one of those looks that I was like, Oh, I can hear the, I can hear the guy doing this voice now, (laughs) you know? So I don't know. There's something there that like, Oh, that they hit on something that, uh, triggered something in my brain anyway that made me kind of capture the essence of this no, character I can see in my that. head. I, I, think I don't know that's if that makes probably sense. the right call on the characterization of of him and how he would speak. You know, and, and it's almost as if they photoshop a real face and just kind of morph it and color it to fit. So I just kind of imagine, you know, are they sitting like in an office and say, hey, hey, uh, John, come over here. I want to take your picture. <laughs> I don't mean John Burns like the <laughs> author, but like whoever, you know, it's like, Frank, come over here. I want to mm-hmm. take your picture. Or they go to their next door neighbor that they don't like and take his picture and then put him in a comic and morph his face and color it blue or something. <laughs> I mean to say that's probably exactly what happens, Bruce. <laughs> I want my face in here. <laughs> you can color me and distort my face anywhere you want. I just I think it would be cool to see my face in new visions. Oh, that'd be interesting. So what are your kind of final thoughts on New Visions number 20? Uh, the story was fun. I mean, and, and interesting. Uh, I think I kind of knew, in a sense, where it was going, so it wasn't too surprising. But I just enjoyed, like I said, going around the ship and seeing the ship and seeing Rand in a different uniform, seeing other aspects of the ship uh, that we've never seen before. I would say I probably enjoyed this New Visions more than any that I've read before. So it's my favorite New Visions comic. I think uh, I would have to agree with you on that one. This was a really enjoyable outing for the New Visions comic style. And I think partially because it mostly, well, it all takes place on the Enterprise. It's, you know, there's not a lot of challenging environments but what new environments we do get, like the, you know, behind the the walls of the bridge and inside the guts of where the turbo lifts go and the library computer banks, those are really well done and look really, 
realistic and like they would fit right in with the original series you know if there was an episode unproduced that used those sets that surfaced today we'd be like oh yeah that's what that would look like so i think john byrne has done a really good job with this one and even though the design of the alien popped me out of the story a little bit it's still a really interesting design and i think he's done a really good yeah, job it's with not this an one. alien that you would see on the original series no definitely not <laughs> But then they all just looked like humans. Right, so. True. so when I read these comics, sometimes I think of when Scott Mance was on the show, when we were talking about the photo novels, he said when he reads New Visions, he recognizes like on almost every panel, oh, that shot of Kirk is from this episode. And that's what, do you try to pick those things out when you read them? Absolutely. And I think kind of at this point, it's, it's not even something that I'm trying to do. It just, uh, like it, it seems to happen automatically. There were a lot in this one actually that seemed quite, uh, I don't want to say generic, but were a little harder to place because there was a lot of just kind of roaming around the corridors and stuff, but still a lot of very, uh, distinctive moments. Like when, uh, Kirk's pounding on the turbo lift door, for example, is a very iconic moment. And I know I'm contradicting myself now because I can't remember exactly what episode it's from, but I can totally picture it in my head when when he did yeah, that. I think it's just amazing <laughs> that John Byrne is able to go and just pull all these out. I don't. I, I just wonder how long it takes him to do all this. That would be interesting. Hmm. hmm. I wonder how easy it is to get uh, in contact. I'm sure with him. he's listening right <laughs> now. John, give us a call. <laughs> Excellent. We'd love to have you on. Well, what do you say we leave the world of comics behind us and venture into the Shatnerverse once again? Sounds good to me. Well, today in the feature, we're discussing the second book in the Shatnerverse tot totality trilogy, <laughs> and that is Captain's Blood, written, of course, by William Shatner with Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. So first of all, kind of almost a tradition uh, when we do these older novels, Bruce, is this your first time reading this one? And how did you read it? <laughs> yes and no. Uh, it's my first time reading it, but when it came out, I listened to it as an audiobook, which those are abridged. So this is my first mm. full experience in Captain's Blood by William Shatner. Oh, okay. And I read it as an ebook this time. Okay. Yeah, this is uh this was my first time reading it. Uh but I have owned this one for quite a while. And again, this is one of the ones that it looks like I picked up at a secondhand bookstore while I was living in Korea because it actually had the original sales receipt inside it. And it was about eight thousand won for to pay to buy that book, which is about eight dollars or so. So Oh well that's so Wong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah the novel came out in 2002 as a hardcover book and uh this is the second novel in the totality trilogy uh then the third book which we covered captain's peril a few episodes ago and then mm -hmm. uh sometime here in the next month we're going to do the last one captain's glory which i also that one so captain's peril and Captain's Blood, I listened to his audiobooks, but Captain's Glory, I read the hardcover book, which I still have, because I can't part with my Star Trek novels. <laughs> I hear you. I, I'm the same way. I have so many of them, and I have nowhere to put them, but I can't get rid of them. So, 
And I keep adding new ones too, which is probably doubly crazy. But yeah, so this one, like you said, it's it's the second novel in this trilogy. And the first novel, Captain's Peril. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit oh, about no. this because <laughs> that one really didn't feel like it had anything to do with this one with a few exceptions. And first of all, we've got this totality uh, threat that becomes apparent through the course of this novel. And the only thing that really ties that to the last novel is that's the story that Kirk happened to tell Picard while they were vacationing on Bajor, which seems like a really crazy coincidence to me. And the actual story in that book that takes place in the 24th century has really nothing to do with what's going on in this book. I was really expecting some sort of uh, connective tissue. I know you had said that they, they, it feels very standalone, but I thought there'd be like some plot involving the Cardassian that was in the first one or something to do with Bajor, anything, but, but none of that. There's absolutely no connection other than while all that was happening, Kirk was telling Picard this story about what happened to him you know, a century and a half ago. Yeah. It's so interesting. Our perspectives of this, because you hadn't read these books before. And I, I have when they first came out and, you know, there was some distance between them, of course, when, you know, they were published and I remember my memory of it at the time was this was a trilogy that just didn't seem to be connected. Like you were just saying, so when we read Captain's Peril this time and now reading Captain's Blood, as I was reading Captain's Blood, I was like, oh, well, now I'm now I am seeing how these are connected. It's not it doesn't feel like it's one continuous story over three books. But like you said, Kirk tells a story from his original five year mission in Captain's Peril, which the villain in quotes from that story shows up now in this story. And it's like you said, what is the coincidence that Kirk tells that story (laughs) and then that person from that story from a hundred some years ago shows up? (laughs) It's a good thing he didn't tell a story about the Doomsday Machine or Gary Mitchell or something. It could have been really bad. (laughs) Yeah, just all of a sudden, why is the Doomsday Machine here? I was just talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, so that strikes me as really odd. But I mean... You know, I I guess it's not necessarily a coincidence. It's just what the writers wrote. So I, I, I guess, guess that so. Makes sense, it's, we weren't, if you haven't heard the episode of Captain's Peril, we weren't big fans of that one. Let's just say that. And I do have to correct mm-hmm. myself. This book came out in 2003, where Captain's Peril came out in oh, okay, 2002. Yeah. But I think Captain's Glory came out in 2006. There's a bigger gap there. So. Oh, wow. I think so. There's a bit of a gap. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this one kind of kicks off with Spock on Romulus and he's giving a speech in front of a crowd of about 3000 Romulans and there's an explosion and Spock is apparently killed uh, with, you know, all these witnesses. But however, we find out very early on that he faked his death to remove himself from the public stage because he felt it was time to to leave public life 
in a dramatic way and to and to enhance his message to make it resonate more because of the emotionalism that it would be tied to because of his death. What do you think of this plan? Does this seem logical to you? Does this seem like something Spock would do or um maybe in a gold key comic? No. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> it's not too far off for me. It didn't bother me. Uh it seemed almost kind of like a magic trick that he was pulling, you know, mm-hmm. where something explodes, but he falls back and has it planned so he can kind of disappear or something. And I guess I like the idea of him trying to approach things differently to get the Romulans to think differently about things and, I don't know. It it, mm. it did seem a little odd, but um, but of course we know he's not dead. Yeah, and that's something that I really want to point out is one of the things that really bugged me in Captain's Peril was we spend like a good probably half of the book with the book almost seemingly trying to convince us that Picard is dead and Kirk mourning Picard and like, oh my God, Picard is dead. Um. And it felt like they were trying to convince the readers of that too, where we know like, no, he's not dead. He can't be dead. Like that's, that's ridiculous. This one takes a very different approach where, you know, it starts off with this event and it says Spock is dead, but then very shortly thereafter in the book, it's revealed to the readers. No, he's not dead. He's, he's alive. You know, it's, it's either the next chapter or the chapter after that you learn very quickly which I thought was really good. You know, we still get to experience Kirk's grief because he believes that Spock is dead, but we as the readers aren't being fooled or, you know, not being fooled as the case may be, which I thought was a much better way to do it. Yeah. And the fact that Captain's Peril made it seem, like you said, it's trying to convince you that, you know, Picard may be dead. I don't know if that was the authors trying to convince us because let, let's go back to 2002. We don't have nemesis yet when this book was being written. Um, so maybe the thought was, Oh, well, you know, the show's over. So Kirk could be dead. And maybe they thought they could convince people that, they're killing off. I mean, that Picard is dead, that they're killing Picard off in the books. Uh, but now mm. this book, Captain's Peril was published October, 2002, two months before Nemesis. So promotion of Nemesis would be coming out showing that Picard is alive. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, it didn't yeah. bother me that much in, in peril because we knew that he was, we knew he would be alive, but Kirk doesn't know he's alive. So mm. we're going on Kirk's journey through that where this one i'm glad that they didn't do the same thing again where we're going to kill off a major character that you know probably isn't dead and it's like okay this time we're not going to downplay it we're actually going to show you how he faked his death or tell you about it without you waiting to the end when kirk finds out yeah i was really worried i have to admit when that when the book opened like that and i thought oh my god are they going to be trying to convince us the entire book because i I could totally see a draft of this book being written where the reveal isn't until the very end you know 
kind of giving stuff away, but I mean, not really. Kirk's obviously going to find out that Spock is still alive. And when that reveal happens towards the end of the book, can you imagine if that's when it was revealed to the reader? Like, I would have been so annoyed that they did the exact same thing, but they didn't. They did something different, which I thought was much more interesting. And I found it interesting also that once that was revealed, because that's how this, this book starts off. And shortly after that, it's revealed as to what Spock did. I expected a Spock to appear earlier in the book then, but he didn't show up till mm-hmm. much later. So I thought it was interesting that they revealed yeah. that, but yet kept him off the story for like a good half of the book or so. Yeah, that's true too. It was, I, it made me wonder throughout the story, where's Spock? Like, where is he in all this? What's his role in this, in what's going on? And like the, like usual, the first part of this will do mostly spoiler free, but we'll get into the spoilers kind of in the last half of the podcast. So, you know, if you haven't read this book yet, you can you can listen all the way through if you want to be spoiled. But we'll give you an, a, a fair warning that we're going to start talking about kind of the, the last half and the end of this book and, and what's revealed in it uh, as we get there. So, yeah, I found myself wondering throughout, yeah, when is Spock going to show up and what is his role in all this? And I thought he was going to show up at the very end. I couldn't, it's been years since I read the book, so I don't remember a lot, but I kept thinking, Mm. oh, we haven't seen Spock in a while. Oh, I bet they saved him for the very end and that carries over to the next book. Yeah, and that makes sense for sure. And I do have to say, I liked Kirk's emotional journey with this. And I love when the moments when he's with McCoy and there's this almost unspoken communication. Well, it is unspoken communication between them where Kirk starts thinking about Spock and McCoy pipes up. Yeah, Jim, I miss him too. Kind of thing. It's just this bond that the three of those men have is really great. And this what they've set up in this book gives the opportunity to the authors to explore what that loss would be like for Kirk, even though we know that Spock isn't really dead and it'll get reversed later, but to be with Kirk on that journey and not be annoyed that they're trying to pull one over on us or something I thought was really Kirk is now going on a mission. He's not a Starfleet officer anymore, but he's going on a mission to find, you know, who murdered Spock and also why. But there was a sense that I got from this that I wasn't convinced that Kirk was convinced that Spock was dead. Oh, interesting. I just felt he would have been maybe a little more emotional or wanting to was I, I felt like he would be even more determined to find out who the murderer is if he felt Spock truly was dead. Or Mm. I can look at it this way is they've been through so much. They're so old (laughs) at this point that they're (laughs) just of the, you know, we knew this day was coming and, you know, just kind of accepting it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there's kind of a midpoint between those two that I felt Kirk was at in this story where like, it was kind of those quieter melancholy moments where, I, I felt there was a bit of that, like, yeah, you know, right. it was bound to happen one of these days, but man, I miss that guy. And Bones is like, yeah, me too, Jim. And I, I don't know. I just, 
those those quiet moments of remembrance. Yeah, I and, were really and now good. that I think about it, they may not be as close as they used to. Not just to say that they're not close, but when they're serving on a starship together, they're seeing each other every day and going through everything imaginable that people can go through out in space on these missions. And now they've been separated for many decades and Kirk is back and he's occasionally seen Spock, but not on a regular basis. Spock has been busy on Romulus through the unification and Kirk's been going on other adventures with Picard and like skydiving and telling stories in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> and pulling Picard out of big fish. And, yeah. And stuff but no, like when that. you think about it in these books, it's actually Kirk spends more time with Picard. They seem to have more mm -hmm. of a relationship at this point than he uh Kirk does with Spock. No, that's true. I I never thought of that. So yeah, like you said, they're they're going on this mission and basically Starfleet uh, provides them what they call a Q ship, which is uh, kind of a spy ship almost. It's looks run down and, and nondescript and, and old and clunky, but it's actually outfitted with, you know, state-of-the-art technology, really amazingly fast warp engines and a distributed phaser system that can hide itself. And when it comes online, it assembles and fires or something like that you know it's 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 kind of a james bond ship that's made to look like an old rust bucket kind of thing and they're taking this ship to romulus uh to ostensibly investigate spock's murder and it's so it's kirk picard bones scotty we've also got dr crusher and Geordi and Kirk's son Joseph, who we'll get to in a in a little bit here, and unbeknownst to Kirk, uh, Captain Janeway's EMH, so the Doctor from Voyager, is along as kind of Janeway's uh, personal representative on this mission because it's not just Spock's murder they're investigating. There's also some sort of clandestine mission going on that Picard is undertaking on behalf of Janeway as well. And of course they're keeping this secret from Kirk because, you know, in these Shatnerverse novels, it's gotta be Kirk versus the world. And you know, everyone's, everyone's out to malign and, and sideline Kirk and it's up to him to save the day and all that kind of stuff. He's like the Jack Bauer, <laughs> you know, of the of the star trek universe he's he's gotta go up against everyone and against all odds yada 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 anyway yeah and you mentioned <laughs> about janeway and one of the things i liked about the book is we got you know quite quite a few scenes of admiral janeway in this and her relationship in managing Riker of the titan and picard and kirk and just seeing that relationship that we haven't seen that much of, of Janeway as an admiral with these characters. We've seen Admiral Janeway a lot in the Voyager novels, but to see her uh, command and execute the mission uh, with this, these crew of people was, uh, was really nice to see because we, so many times we see the bad admiral mm -hmm. or the admiral that's really making bad decisions. And, not that they saw eye to eye or agreed with one another between Janeway and 
especially Riker. But um, you know, it wasn't like she was unreasonable. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I have I have some issues with this plan that they're undertaking, which we'll get to later. But yeah, for the most part, like you said, she's not a bad moral. Um, it's it's kind of interesting to explore that type of character, kind of like how the later Star Trek novels have with the character of Admiral Riker, you know, where he's kind of in that role. So yeah, I like that, that we get a main character thrust into that position that would usually be kind of an antagonistic role in like the TNG series or something like that. But, you know, it's a, it's a different relationship now. And I mean, it is kind of an antagonistic role in Mm -hmm. some ways. Like you said, they don't always see eye to eye, but you know, it's, it's an, it's a different relationship than, you know, Admiral Necheyev coming on board and dictating to Picard or, uh, you know, Admiral Pressman and his illegal cloaking device stuff. It's, it's, it's different. Well, and one thing I want to point out about this novel, uh, again, published in 2003, this was about a year after Star Trek Nemesis was in the theaters and there's a lot of influence Mm -hmm from that movie in this book. And one of the things is having Captain Riker and Troy aboard the Titan. And I think this is the first Mm -hmm. Star Trek book that featured him as captain of the Titan because taking wing, which is the first dedicated Titan book didn't come out until 2005. Nice. Look at you doing all the research there. That's great. Because I was about to ask, when did Taking Wing come out? And that's yeah. interesting that this is the first we see of Riker in Command Right, of and the we Titan. don't really that's see, cool. we're not introduced to the crew and such, which I think is smart because that leaves the door open for the later novels to establish them. Yeah, and that was really cool. I have to wonder if there was maybe a couple scenes with some crew or something like that. And, you know, the editors at Pocket Book said, oh, wait, actually you know, we've got this plan to do this. Maybe you don't want to do that to leave those doors open. I'm I'm wondering because, yeah, I would have thought they would, they would have at least solicited, um, had pitches by authors by this time of what was going to happen with. Yeah. Riker they may have the said, Let, you know, don't go there or take those out, but there wasn't, whole, there aren't many scenes aboard the Titan. So it, we don't really need yeah. that. All we see is Riker and Troy yeah. aboard the ship. Yeah, so. they're the only two that operate the Titan. That That's canon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, like you said, this book takes a lot of cues from Star Trek Nemesis. And one of the things that I thought Star Trek Nemesis kind of fell down on was the Remans and kind of explaining that whole society. So, for example... Watching Nemesis, I was never really sure if the Remans were native to the planet Remus and were then enslaved by the by the Vulcans who came and became the Romulans, or if they themselves were descended from the Vulcan-Romulan split. And this book kind of takes the tack that they were also descended from Vulcans and have evolved from their time being in the dark on Remus to look the way they are. Uh, what do you think of how the, the Remans were portrayed in this novel and, and kind of how that part of their society is shown? When Nemesis came out, I thought that they may have been descendants of the Romulans and because they were on 
Remus and, and that. I, and maybe maybe I'm remembering wrong, and maybe I'm thinking about this book, and it's affecting my memory of that. But I've always kind of had that in the back of my mind when I think of of the Remans. So maybe it came from this book. I don't know. I don't remember anymore. But it it wasn't surprising to me because that's how I always thought of them as being descendants. So anyway, they're on Remus, and I just thought it was interesting how this book portrayed that. Anybody is a Reman as long as they've been sent to Remus. So it's not necessarily this race. You don't have to be a descendant of the Romulans to be a Reman, which so plays into other things that we get with Nemesis, including a clone of Picard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually have to applaud this book for kind of retconning that idea into the Reman society because that was brilliant. Like that was one thing in Nemesis I never really understood was they were like, oh, the new praetor of the Romulan Empire and he's Reman. And they're like, Reman, my goodness. Oh, that's that's amazing. And they get there and he's a clone of Picard who was sent to Remus as a boy. But this idea that Reman society is if you're exiled to Remus, you're a Reman. I, I love that. I thought that was just really nice. And I mean, you can read into Nemesis and say, oh, OK, that must be the case. But it's outright kind of retconned here that that's how it is. So even the Romulan guards kind of thing that are there are if you're there long enough, you're almost exiled there yourself because nobody really wants to do that. So they're sometimes they're kind of considered Remans as well, which right. is kind yeah, of Yeah. So there's actual Romulans that are Remans. <laughs> so, and <laughs> yeah, it totally explains why, uh, Shinzon is accepted and they're following his lead on, um, a nemesis because they don't see him as being any mm-hmm. different. It's almost like the Remans think like the Federation. Doesn't matter what race you are, what species you are, you're part of the whole organization treated equal as long as you're here. Yeah, it's it's treated more as yeah. a nationality than a species. So yeah, which is in- interesting. Something you don't see a lot in Star Trek. Star Trek tends to with the exception of the Federation, very much, you know, if you're a Betazoid, you're from Beta Z. If you're, you know what I mean? Like it's very segregated is the wrong word, but it's very, um, species delineated, I guess, (laughs) you know, if you, you, you wouldn't expect to see a non Klingon as part of the Klingon empire, for example. No, absolutely. But in this case, that's a very good point. We don't see that enough in Star Trek. It's, I feel as, as as Star Trek continues on and evolves, whether it's in the books or even now on screen with Discovery, you know, we talk about the Klingons looking different in Discovery than other Klingons, and I really enjoy seeing different aspects. Like, you know, not everybody looks exactly the same that's part of the same species, and not everyone who is part of that society or that nationality has to be of that same species. You know, I mean, you could be a human mm-hmm. and you grow up on Kronos and you're a Klingon because you grew up on Kronos. Or maybe you're called a Kronosian. Kronosian. I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of not strictly delineated by species, 
let's talk a little bit about Kirk's son, Joseph, who, of course, is Kirk's son with Teilani, who is part Klingon and part Romulan. And the last time we saw him, he had been uh, just been born and was kind of uh, there was some genetic abnormalities with him. And he seemed a little outside of what would be considered the norm. And now we see him. He's I think I said five or six years yeah, old five years at old. this point. But yeah, but kind of presents more like a right. 10 or 11 year old. Yeah, like Alexander. Like now, this is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you want to hire the young, the older actors, or what we learned more in quickly. So, I mean, I mean, Klingons well, no, it's age all repl- it's that's all it. going Sorry. back to the final reflection. That's where we learned that they grow exactly. up really quick. Well, so yeah, Kirk's son Joseph, really interesting character. And since you brought up Discovery, I want to ask if the same thing that went went through your head that went through mine. They talk a lot about him being bald and having you know, a ridged head and all this sort of stuff. I pictured kind of an amalgam of the discovery style Klingons when they were describing him. And I mean, obviously that's just total coincidence. There's no link between that whatsoever, but it's really interesting that the descriptions kind of work with that. And I was kind of doing a meld in my head because he's got pointed ears of Romulan but forehead ridges of a Klingon and he's bald. I don't know. How about you? I Did that enter your mind yes, at all? Yes. Now that you mention it, I do remember thinking that because when they described uh, his head and seeing the ridges or the spine from the back coming up to the back of his head, because I think, didn't they mention you saw like the spine of his back? I, I And I thought of, yeah, I definitely pictured the discovery Klingons in this and you're right. Mm-hmm. And he's you know part Romulan. He's part Vulcan. He's part human. He's got all these things going on. So it's like you take from like what you're saying, take from discovery, what you saw and put pointed ears. And yeah, it's almost kind of hard to picture. I almost picture him like uh, what, what we saw the Klingons, even in the discovery comics. Um, mm-hmm. because we saw some younger Klingons in there. So I was kind of picturing that. Yeah. That was kind of yeah. the young Takuvma and, and that kind of kid face, but with the discovery style Klingon. Yeah. Uh, this is a really interesting character. Uh, he's Kirk's son, but could also, depending on how he develops, be considered Kirk's daughter at some point, because there's some, um, fluidity there i guess and he's got uh he's got kind of some feminine names from his mother's side to call and talan so a really interesting character and also plays a big role we find out in the story possibly in Riemann society which when we when we kind of blow the spoiler horn and say we're going to be doing spoilers we'll uh we'll get a little bit more into that actually this yeah, might be a good time to do that now, I think. So warning everyone out there, uh, if you haven't read this book, you might want to pause the podcast, go read it quickly, come back, listen, or if you don't care, just keep on listening. That's totally fine. But we're going to be getting into spoilers now. So consider yourselves warned. So they get to Romulan space and they're intercepted by some warbirds 
And it turns out that they want the ship diverted to Remus before they go to Romulus. And their interest seems to be in Kirk's son, Joseph. And it turns out that he is prophesized in Riemann society as the one who will uh, set them free and give them Wait, their We're talking freedom. about Tom and, and Balana's baby? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no. What is it with uh, characters having yeah. messianic Yeah, oh, mate, we're children. talking about Cisco and Cassidy's kid. No. I, yeah, that must be it. That yeah, was... there is no, a wait, lot of no. this in these books. I was like, why do we keep getting this? <laughs> is the traveler going to show up and say this kid's special and whisk him off to another plane of existence or something? Like, I what's know. going on here? That kind of bothered me, even though I think this is before some of those others. But, you know, it was just like, why is every Starfleet <laughs> officer has a kid and they're special? <laughs> huh. I never thought about that. Jake must be really mad because <laughs> he's just a writer. Not that there's anything wrong with writers. No, not at all. Cause we're reading what but, they write. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so he's, he's prophesized to be this uh, great figure in Riemann society. And another thing we learn about the Riemanns is their names all come from what position they hold or what job they hold. So there's a Riemann, for example, named Doctor, and he's the doctor there. And the title they give for the leader who will lead them to freedom is Shinzon. Yes. So apparently Shinzon's name wasn't just his name. It was his title as well. And that's a bit of a retcon as well, I'm thinking. But... Joseph is apparently prophesized to be the new Shinzon for the Remans, which uh, odd position to put a five-year-old in, yes, I think. Yes, the prophecy, prophecy says. But, you know, I love this part, like you're saying about the titles, because Shinzon means liberator. And so the Shinzon mm. we see in Nemesis, Shinzon now, I understand, is wouldn't be his real name. And I don't think we really know what his real name is, except for maybe Jean-Luc Picard, because he's a clone of, but he took on that title of Shinzon because that's what they do on Remus. And they named them of, you know, what it is that they do. And they recognized him as being their liberator. And now they're recognizing Joseph as being their liberator, which is also kind of interesting. Now I'm thinking about it because the two Shinzons or two liberators are both a clone or a descendant of a Starfleet captain. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's really yeah. a Picard and a Kirk. <laughs> so the next one's going to be Cisco. The, he's going to be the new Shinzon emissary. Well, I got to say, you know, Kirk is just horning in on, on all the captain's territory. Cause in the last novel, he was like, he knew Bajoran religion and became just an expert and, and kind of revered by the Bajorans in at least in this one little area because of what he did. And, in this one, he's like, ah, oh, Picard's clone was Shinzon. Well, my son is Shinzon too. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, you can't have all these toys. I want to play with them myself, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, Kirk introduces yeah. himself from now on. James T. Kirk, father of Shinzon. <laughs> and also I led my ship home from the Delta Quadrant twice. <laughs> <laughs> that is true too. Yes. It's got, got to do it all. <laughs> yeah. 
So the fact of Joseph being this new Shinzon to the Remans kind of puts a huge monkey wrench in their mission because they're waylaid from being able to go to Romulus to investigate Spock's death and instead have to deal with the situation on Remus and are stuck there. But it's kind of good because all roads kind of lead to Remus here because all of the plots seem to be centering around Remus. And there's this plot to start a new civil war, basically. And supposedly it's the Tal Shiar who are uh, behind this plot. But we eventually learn that that is not the case. And the big baddies who just happened to be talked about by Kirk and Picard in the last novel... Uh, and Kirk met very early in his mission on the original Enterprise, they're behind everything here. So we get a return of Norinda, who is this uh, alluring, very attractive woman who can kind of change herself to be whatever someone desires kind of thing. So, uh, for example... uh, he she appears to Jordy as Dr. <laughs> Leah Brahms. I mean, Jordy, <laughs> good lord, you, you, the real thing. You've got the hologram version of her, and now you've got the Norinda version <laughs> of her. To just you know, make sure that Leah doesn't find out about this one because she did not react well to the hologram. I don't think she'll react well to this. And Picard, uh, she, she appears to him as Janice Mannheim. Uh, this early girlfriend of his that uh, was mentioned in season one of TNG. But they find out that pain can kind of drive them, drive her effect from their minds. So that's kind of how they get around that. And of course she appears to Kirk as Teilani, but Kirk doesn't even need to have some sort of external pain afflicted upon him because he he carries his pain with him. He needs his pain. Exactly. <laughs> he knew exactly where I was going with that. And uh, because of the death of Teilani, he carries his pain with him and is immune to that effect. So, yeah, um, like you said, this is where we start to see those tie ins with the last novel. Somewhat coincidentally, but whatever. I'll let this go eventually, <laughs> I swear. You know, I... Uh... <laughs> I was just thinking, I wonder, because we never saw Riker uh, see her. So how do you think she would appear to Riker? I have my hmm. answer. I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't think it's Troy, though. Uh-oh. Yeah, I was going to say, you better hope I, it's Troy if I think she's it's there. Cause... Ooh, yeah, because Future yeah. Imperfect, right? That was his... And then his Troy's standing there, and she's like, ride. Will... What are you doing? <laughs> what? What? But no, I. Uh, well, you know, I think just to go on a little tangent, I think Troy knows what she's getting into with Will Riker, and she just roll her eyes and go, "Yeah, I figured." Yeah. <laughs> Troy's strong. She she knows she knows Riker. She'll be like, "That's okay," because <laughs> I would see Fabio, but or something like that. <laughs> or Devanani Rall. <laughs> oh God, never mind. I hate that character. <laughs> but um but uh Norinda I I thought she was a bit cheesy in Captain's Peril but I actually enjoyed her more in this. She does seem kind of over a top mm-hmm. villain in a sense. 
you know, a little but bit. I, yeah, I like this in here just because of her effect on the others, and they know what she's doing, and they're trying to avoid, you know, trying to fall under her spell, and then her interactions with Joseph, and Kirk does not mm-hmm. want Joseph to see her as his deceased mother, Talani. And tells him to look away yeah. and don't look and don't look. And and I enjoyed that scene. That was, for what this character is, that was probably the most powerful scene, at least somewhat emotionally, throughout the, the book involving uh, Norinda. So I did enjoy that part of it. Yeah, there are definitely times where she seems very over the top. And... Like I was not buying her innocent routine before she's revealed as the, as the big bad guy, you know, as, as Joseph says, she's a bad guy. Um, yeah, I, I was not buying her kind of protestations of innocence and wanting everybody to love and that sort of thing. When in fact she is actually the representation of the totality. So in Captain's Peril, she tells Kirk that she's fighting the total, the totality and, you know, wants her, wants their help in fighting them. But it's revealed here that she is actually what's behind it all. And the totality apparently is responsible for the fate of the Andromeda galaxy, which was that whole bit that we saw at the end of captain's peril that kind of leads into this novel. So overall, what do you think, like what what what's their end game here because they they have this thing where they kind of dissolve things into matter or something like that is that is that what they're trying to do to the whole galaxy or something or like i'm kind of she's trying to start a war but like what's what's the end game what what's she trying to do and i mean i guess you probably know yeah, cuz you've I read don't the remember. next book <laughs> Ooh, That's why okay. I like rereading these because I don't remember. Um, and of course, as I start reading the next book, I'll go, oh, yeah, now I'm starting to remember these things. But right now I don't. And it's not really revealed in here. It's almost just portrayed as if, you know, trying to take over the galaxy. You know, like, OK, trying to take mm-hmm. over the galaxy. We must stop her from doing it. But I don't really know what the motivation behind that is. She talks so much about love and it was almost like, you know, if, if you don't accept love, then you must be destroyed in a sense. So I mm-hmm. guess she's finding out that there isn't like a lot of love going on and she's trying to identify who can love and who doesn't. I don't know. She's like the, the really jilted, jealous ex, ex girlfriend or boyfriend. I guess <laughs> like, so. If you don't accept me, I've got to destroy your life, I guess. I, I don't such, know. Like such an innocence yeah, not, to it though, to me. It's like, she's very much like, yeah, almost like a tantrum. Well, yeah. It's like, you know, Oh, you know, love me or, or, or feel love. And Oh, you're not always feeling love. Okay. Well then I guess I'll just have to destroy you because you don't love. I'll find something else. That, like, I don't know. It just seems so. La di da da. I'm wondering if there's a bit of a parallel here that like maybe there's a lack of understanding of what real love is because we get a scene earlier where they're talking to I think it's Bones and Kirk are talking to a Reman where uh 
you know, what will the Shinzon bring? And he says, oh, he will bring freedom. He said, well, what is freedom? What does that mean? And he kind of is like, I don't really know. Like, it will, our lives will be better. Well, how will they be better? Well, they just will. You know, and I wonder if, you know, in the way that, you know, and that that's very tragic, an entire society of people who don't even understand what freedom is. They just know that it's something good. Uh, I'm wondering if there's kind of a bit of a parallel there with Narinda and the totality not knowing mm, what love is. That's very good. You know, they just need they just need a certain song sung to them. I want to know what love is. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, there you go. That, that's I all you're was get just out of me waiting that. for <laughs> that. I and I watched you hesitate. Like, am I going to do this? And boom, you went there. I loved it. <laughs> I was channing I was channeling Matthew Russian, <laughs> I think. Yeah. <laughs> well no, and, and I, I love what you said there. I, I think there is a parallel between those two. And it is tragic that they want freedom but they don't really know what that is. So they're trying to obtain something they don't really understand because they've never experienced it. They just know it's good. I would love to see mm -hmm. that played out more. I don't know if it I don't recall if it does in the book, the next book. I don't think it does, but I mean, that's an interesting story right there in itself, in my opinion. What I, I did like also about this that was a bit comical was when she's trying to take Joseph away and she's on that ship, the Q-tip. What's it called again? The... <laughs> <laughs> the uh the calypso yes is so the she's name trying to get <laughs> she's trying to get him off the ship and uh she says you know come with me and he's like oh daddy don't you know don't let i don't want to go you know and it's so good to see you because you know i was hiding and and this is where i was hiding and this is what i was doing and giving like this whole like plan and i'm like wait this sounds like he's like trying to tell Kirk not what he was doing, but what the plan was. And then I realized, oh, I know who this is. This isn't really Joseph. It's the doctor. It's the EMH as Joseph. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was a really cool ploy. And I have to ask, so did you, did you realize that before they revealed yes. it outright in the book or? Yeah, me too. Okay, cool. Like, and I thought it was really well done. Like it was just enough when Kirk realizes it. he doesn't even, we, he doesn't right. say it in the book in, in his mind or anything. He just says, oh, and then his switch turned on. He's like, yeah, you can go with it, with her, blah, blah, blah. And it was at that moment too. I was like, oh, of course that's what's going on. And yeah. yeah and really I was cool. concerned later. And like you said, we're in spoilers, but I was concerned later because, um, he got, was it shot? I think he shot and it was his emitter that fell and got hit or whatever. And then we never right. heard about him again. And I was, I was getting to the end of the book when everything was wrapping up. I'm like, what happened to the doctor? Is he alive? And we're like, what happened? And then they finally said, oh, look, we fixed his emitter and he's fine now. You know, I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I feel bad because I, I didn't even think about it till it got to that part. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Whoops. <laughs> I would be a bad person to accompany the doctor on an away mission, apparently. I was like, oh, right. He was with us. I totally forgot. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a good person. I, I, I missed him. I was worried about him. 
<laughs> well, good for you. Because <laughs> we don't get a lot of Voyager characters in these books, so you know. Which we don't get any DS9. No, that's true. So. No, but we got an interesting mix of TOS and TNG characters, which is kind of the final thing I noticed you put here on the outline here. Uh, this kind of meld of the two crews. So Kirk, Spock, and Bones, of course, from TOS and uh, and Scotty as well. And then from TNG, we've got Picard, Crusher, LaForge. And I forgot to mention Worf also shows up and then Riker and Troy come by later from the Titan. Um, how well do you think these guys all work together? Did this, was this a good team or what did you think? So the reason yeah. I put this in the notes is because in the Shatnerverse novels, there seems to be a lot of melding of different crews and they just happen to fall in together. And sometimes I feel like it's forced. And in this case, it didn't feel mm -hmm. as forced to me. Uh, yeah. It, it, yeah. it felt like, you know, we, we know that Riker and the Titan with Troy, of course, are in the, uh, near Romulus anyway. So, and that was established in Nemesis. So it made sense for them to be there. And uh, it made sense for Janeway to be the admiral overseeing this mission who recruits Kirk to come find Spock, who, you know, find his murderer. Right, because she sent Picard to Romulus right. and Nemesis anyway. So obviously that's something inside her and purview, the, I guess. Um, Enterprise is under repair from the events of Nemesis. So Picard and some of his mm -hmm. crew members are available <laughs> you know so it all just yeah i really like how they worked that in because like that's kind of serendipitous that that worked out that way yeah. you know the enterprise is still getting repaired from uh crashing and into Picard the initially <laughs> didn't want to go but jamie convinces him to go on this mission and uh and the emh the doctor uh you know he's working for janeway and he's secret agent emh in this case you know so that's why i put it in here because i felt out of the other shatnerverse novels that brings a lot of these crews together i felt this one felt not as forced and more natural i think the other one i think the return uh that novel the second one of the shatnerverse works pretty well but i think this one works the best so i really like that yeah and when i mm. i'm sorry yeah, and when i, I put these and when I put these in the notes, I try to give like fun titles and I call this one, we are one big happy fleet from Khan. <laughs> <laughs> I like that because you, yeah, you totally hear Khan's voice there. <laughs> it's like one of those memes that, you know, has a certain character in the text. And it's like, you totally heard yeah. this in their voice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I really liked that. Uh, I guess I guess the doctor, you know, has to say activate emergency super spy hologram or something like that. I, I don't know. But I have to say I kind of liked the doctor in this one because uh, there's an episode of Voyager and I think it's actually like the second last episode of the series. And it's called Renaissance Man. And you see the doctor doing things that you think like, ah, oh, the doctor should be able to do that. Like he disguises himself as crew members and... Uh, Tuvok's trying to capture him and he like runs up the wall and flips over or something like that. And I'm like, that's the doctor I want to see. And in this book, he does a bunch of things like alters his hologram to make it look, look like 
he beamed away or right. Joseph beamed away or something like that. And just all sorts of little stuff that like that, that I'm like, yeah, the EMH should totally be able to do that. I thought that was a really interesting aspect. Now, of yeah. Now that you mention it, I would love to see a story, an adventure of the doctor and Odo together because they can change their appearance Ooh. throughout the whole mission. And spend the entire time getting on <laughs> yes. each other's nerves. <laughs> you imagine two grumpier characters together? I throw Quark into that whole mix just to make it interesting. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I actually really want to read that now. <laughs> it's 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 uh, the Excellent. Doctor and Odo on a mission to save Quark and Neelix together. I changed my mind. And Quark is pouring the drinks and Neelix is making the food. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm soured on the idea now. (laughs) Well, putting that particular novel concept aside, what did we think about this novel? What are kind of your final thoughts and uh, maybe a rating for Captain's Blood? I like this novel a lot better than I like Captain's Peril, which is funny because they're both written by the same authors. Uh, So yeah, Captain's Peril was a disappointment, but Captain's Blood really came back strong. Um, I, I still don't know if I like it as much as some of the other Shatner verse books, but I did enjoy it. Like I said, with the different characters from the different series, I thought that, that flowed well. Uh, I like exploring Kirk as a father with Joseph and bringing Kirk and Spock and McCoy together. And the totality was interesting and wasn't as goofy and, and silly as I thought she was in the first of this trilogy. So I really did like this book. So I say I give this book not a full amount of love, but so much love that it's enough to fill the world, but not quite totally. <laughs> Is it enough to buy the world a Coke? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's not Because before I got That's into this bad. book, I really, I just, I wanted to know what love is. Well, I want you to show me. <laughs> I'll pass on that. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Probably for the best. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. It's uh, a lot better than Captain's Peril. It's kind of one of those things when I start to read a Shatner verse novel, I'm not that excited about reading it because, you know, I've, I've been a little disappointed by some of them in the past, but you know, once I got into this one, I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was really good. I loved Uh, Kirk and Bones, you know, making their way through these tunnels on Remus and and their deception and getting into a shuttle and busting their way out and stuff like that. There's some really great parts in this book. The villain, I'm still not sold on her. I don't really know what her end game and motivation really is. I think it's a little unclear, but I'm hoping, you know, that kind of gets sorted in the next book and we've kind of figured those things out. But yeah, like I say, you know, on the face of it, a Shatnerverse novel doesn't excite me, but once you open it up, it surprises you. So I'm going to give this one one Starfleet Q ship that looks like an old rust bucket, 
But once you figure out what it's really made of, it's actually pretty cool. Oh my gosh, that is so good. That was such a good one. Uh, my love of the world with whatever in the Coke just sucks compared to how you just reviewed that. That was the perfect one. <laughs> <laughs> I liked your rating. Oh, well, I thought you. it was very good. Thank you for all the love. Well, Dan, I really enjoyed hearing you saying uh, that you want to know what love is. That well, that <laughs> made the feature right there. And... um I like also what you said about the Shatnerverse. You don't get really that excited about them, but you enjoy them typically when you do start reading them. I will say that I typically have always been excited about reading the Shatnerverse books because I've really th thought in some ways they're a little over the top, but it's just fun to see Kirk playing in the 24th century and Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, who co-wrote this book with, William Shatner, they always do an excellent job. We know about so many of their books, and then they later worked on Enterprise, the series. So, um, yeah, I mean, they don't necessarily always fit into the continuity as some of the other novels. They kind of stay on their own. That's why they're called Shatnerverse. But I always find, find them to be fun. Yeah, there's definitely a fun aspect to them. I, I kind of had the thought halfway re through reading this one that, like, the Shatnerverse novels are almost like fiction writers in the 24th century writing a book like, what if Kirk were alive today? And like writing, it's like fiction set in the Star Trek universe, which I mean, I guess it is, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like in universe uh, fiction that's been written by someone who lives in the Star Trek universe. It's almost like you could see this book sitting on Captain Giorgio's shelf. Totally among her other books from the original series that haven't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. She, some sort of temporal anomaly library she goes to yes. to get those books. And those who are scratching their heads going like, what is he talking about? In Discovery, when she's on the Shinju, she's got books behind her desk on a shelf and you can't see them clearly, but um, what the titles, but the books are titles from original series episodes. One of those really cool Easter eggs that I, I just love. But anachronistic novels from outside the space-time continuum are not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. But let's start with that first one, that Siege in Superspace. So, oh boy. Superspace... I, I don't know. Is this is this better than subspace? Is it? Well, I think is it this? is. I, the thing I, I really love about this issue is we haven't had uh, many stories at all about super space. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Right. So, OK, they're under orders. They're not supposed to talk about it. And that's how they that's how you maintain the continuity that Kirk and Spock are surprised that there's a mirror universe. I mean, that works. That 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 makes sense. But these people were there. They know that there's doppelgangers there because they know that because Cadet Tilly became Captain Killy, right? They know they know this. To the journey. There was a lot of face melting in this episode. You're right. <laughs> Everyone's melting. What a world! What a world! It was yeah, and everybody was slimy looking. Why were they so sweaty? Why? Seven of Nine had this full-on board queen look about her. She did, and who else was really sweaty looking besides Seven? Neelix was really sweaty looking. Neelix, well. 
I yeah, thought he was. And he had kind of a silver tone. He had the silver he blood. He did. Like, he was distinguished. Distinguished melting Neelix. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he got a buff and polish. <laughs> <laughs> the 602 Club. No, I, I mean, it was really all we had was, like, animated shows. Like, you had, like, the animated Batman series, the animated Superman series. And uh, as far as the big screen went, it was not so great. I mean, you had Blade. Blade was... Some people cite Blade as kind of the precursor for the superhero genre picking back up, but it was very much kind of a, a genre film. I don't, I know technically it is a comic book film. I don't know if I'd count it in the realm of like big budget superhero movies. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. You know, that desktop iTunes app, it seems like every time I go to it, it tells me to update. It drives me crazy. But anyway, <laughs> if you get into there and then you, you know, update the app, then leave us a star rating and written review. We'd really appreciate it. It helps people find us here on the network or out in the podcast universe. And if you're not an Apple user, well, that's fine. So you can also find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can really help us out by becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, and that's all available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute all of these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Once again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we would love, love to hear your thoughts because this show is all about love. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts about today's show. And there are many ways you can do that. And the best place to join in on the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. And you just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that from our form on our website at trek.fm slash contact and just search, I mean, just send to a show and select literary treks and, and then we'll see your email come straight to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And also special for the Literary Treks podcast, we have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up in future episodes. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to take this time to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network, and specifically for being associate producers for Literary Treks. We really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much.
Now, Bruce, when you're not faking your death by detonating a live bomb while recording literary treks, just so that our listeners have that emotional tie that really keeps them strong and, and missing you on this podcast, where can we find you? Well, you can find me trying to convince you that I did die in my fake death, but then in my second book, I will not convince you of that. So you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast, and you can get that in all the same places we mentioned about where you can watch or find Trek FM shows to listen to. And uh, you can always find me in the Babel Conference, talking, typing, listening, and reading everything that's in there. Even though we don't talk and listen, it's typing and reading. But Dan, let me ask you, when you're not in the Babel Conference, <laughs> no, when, you're, uh, when you are not on Remus, being the liberator she's on of the Remans, where can people find you? Well, I mean, it's a big surprise. I, I didn't really expect this, and uh, I'm really not sure what to do with that title. But uh, when I'm not dealing with all of that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos talking mostly about Star Trek, but also other science fiction. And you can find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, and of course on Facebook in the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>